Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Colleen Pashar. Colleen is a Senior Vice President, Enterprise Business Operations and Chief of Staff to the CEO and she leads two separate global teams in field enablement and strategic business operations. Featured in the Building Better Cultures podcast due to her passion for raw leadership, Colleen also sits on the Board of Trustees for the Riley School and is an active member of Chief. An active golfer, downhill skier and mother of two boys, she enjoys being outdoors in any capacity capacity as a participant or a fun of her son's golf, hockey and baseball teams. Colleen holds an MBA from Duke University and a bachelor's in biomedical engineering from Boston University. Hi Colleen, welcome to Women Women podcast. So excited to have you here with us today. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. So let's start with your childhood. How was your childhood? Where did you grow up? Take us back to your childhood. Okay. My childhood was pretty good. I grew up in Western New York in a really small town. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was three and we were living in Florida at the time. And my mom and my brother and I moved back up to Western New York where my mom's parents lived nearby and, you know, started our life there. My dad remarried and had two kids who are, you know, like brother and sister to me. And I lived primarily with my mom. She remarried when I was 12. And out of that, I got an amazing stepfather and two amazing siblings. So we all, you know, became one household as I was entering into junior high, which was a little interesting, but fun. Um, And then, you know, from there, it was school and sports and fun. So who were some of the people who were really your role models? growing up? So first is my mom. She is my rock. Her sense about life and business and how to get through challenges is just remarkable. She was a role model in that even as a single mom, she was constantly investing in herself, um, going back to school, getting additional degrees and certifications. She really just did anything that she could to give my brother and I the skills and the resources and the confidence to do whatever we wanted. She also forced us to do things that she didn't. So she, she didn't ski, for instance. And she forced my brother and I to ski. I, at the time when I was little, hated it. I would like hold on to the banister of our house, screaming and crying, I don't want to go. My brother would be like, just leave her. And my mom would peel me off it, put me in the car, take me to the mountain. And she would sit in the lodge all day long on a Saturday, reading a book while my brother and I were in lessons because she was just convinced like there are some things that you can do forever and I'm going to make sure you can do them. So she was amazing. And then my mom's best friend could not be more opposite from my mother, was extremely successful is extremely successful in business and she was sort of my business role model you know giving me a lot of advice and uh, professional guidance and my first internship and all of those fun things so I I got pretty lucky in terms of women in my life that could help shape the direction of the path I was going to (laughs) take and that's so interesting that you mentioned you know you did not want to do skiing but your mom kind of forced you and then later in life you realized that was such an essential skill set took you a long way so can you talk a little bit about that why is skiing important for you so first of all i love the mountains there's just something inside of me that lights up when i'm in the mountains um in high school and college i raced competitively which gave me that team exposure even in college um i went to boston university and was in the college of engineering so very few women in this in the major that i chose and hard to you know find your group and the ski team was my group you know once ski team started it was like i was home um so (laughs) 
as much as I hated it back then, the fact that my mom pushed me gave me so much confidence. And then when I graduated with biomedical engineering, I did what every engineer does and I became a professional ski bum out west. So um, my girlfriend and I... Is that what every engineer does? Yeah, I know. I mean, my parents were not pleased, as you can imagine. (laughs) But I think it was exactly what I needed. I needed a little base to unwind after, you know, a difficult major and find myself again. So it was really perfect in the end. Um, But my parents were not pleased initially. (laughs) So what took you back from skiing into the workforce? I got an opportunity to join Oracle for a program that they were offering for people who were not in sales, but wanted to transition into sales. So not only was it, you know, getting into a fabulous company that has a ton of opportunity, but it was a training ground. So they were taking people of all skill sets, um, but people who had not previously been in sales. So it was the perfect opportunity for me to move. I moved back across country to Charlotte, North Carolina, where they, the opportunity was open and started my adult life, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> it was time to be an adult. So let me take a step back and ask you, so you did biomedical engineering. So clearly you mm-hmm. were interested in the area. What drove you to that specific major? I chose my major based on two things. Well, let me, let me, I chose my school based on two things. So I wanted biomedical engineering because I wanted to be a doctor and I'm not a, a guaranteed straight A student. I never have been. And so imagining myself trying to get into medical school, I'm competing with most likely straight A biology majors. I love math. So I took a different path to say, I'm going to do biomedical engineering. So I may not have straight A's, but I have a different perspective. I think differently because of the training I've, I've been given as an engineer. Um, it was a you know joint pre-med degree. So it was you know the, the same path, um, heavy in math. And the school had to have biomedical engineering and a C team in order for me to apply. <laughs> But that's great, though. You had clear goals. You knew exactly yeah. what you wanted to focus. So that's yeah. and that's not uh, something we all have at that age, you know? Yeah. That kind of got you um, into school. You came out. You joined Oracle. So after Oracle, you actually chose the same path as your mom, invested in yourself, went back to school. Mm-hmm. So the choice to go back to graduate school was primarily because I was in a role where I was providing business guidance to financial services industry large companies, Bank of America, et cetera, with a biomedical engineering degree. So I didn't follow the biomedical engineering path. I went into software and on the subject matter expert sales side, and I didn't have that business background. And, you know, it was potentially my age that made me feel like I needed more credibility, you know, to walk into these companies and say, here's here's what I think you could do to make your business run better. Um, but I'm sitting, I, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm sitting in the middle of three, four, five really good schools. And so I decided to just see what happened if I applied to get my MBA. Um, And I did and I got in and it was amazing. So would you recommend that to somebody who is in a similar career path where they're trying to transition into different, um, um, not industries, but really different um, career sectors? Do you recommend people to go and get an MBA or do you think there is a different path as well? I think there's a million different paths and there's so many more degrees nowadays, graduate degrees that are more specific that if you know exactly what path you want to take might help. The MBA for me was one, it's, it's, you know, great information to understand the business side of things, regardless of what industry or job or company you are in. Um, But it's also, it was such an intense network that you instantly get. I did the 
um, executive MBA. So it was people that had been in their careers for a little bit longer. And, you know, from day one, you're introduced to a hundred people that are now your network for life. So, you know, it's, it's important to go back and get the education. Don't get me wrong. But when you go to graduate school, it's a different experience where you're, you're building a network for your career. And, and I agree. And sometimes it's helpful to actually be in the workforce, actually have some experience and then go back because then you're so focused on what you need to learn and you're asking the right questions. hundred percent. hundred percent. The executive programs, which almost every school has them now, that's one of the biggest benefits, I think, is because the professor brings up a topic and everybody's hand goes up and says, let me tell you how it's happening in my company. And so you're having real conversations right. instead of, you know, the fictitious company that you're reading about in the book. So true. Um, you also brought up a great word, which is like such a highly rated word for us in all of our focus groups, which is a network, building a network. Mm-hmm. So, so essential. And we always hear this, um, that maybe women don't do such a good job of networking as men do. So what is it that really helped you? And do you have any tips to share with our listeners on how to really build this network? And sometimes if you are, you know, an introvert, how do you get out of that comfort zone and do the things that will build meaningful network? Again, not just yeah. connections, but yeah. meaningful network that stay with you. Yeah, you're speaking my language. This has been something that has been very hard for me. At the very beginning of my career, I did not do a great job of this at all. Um, I basically networked when it was handed to me. Like, oh, you should absolutely meet this person. Okay. So I am an introvert. And, you know, talking just to talk is not my strong suit. If there's something to talk about, I'm in and I'm engaged and I'm I'm all about it. Um, but initiating that to someone, I, I would get blocked. And I think what I finally discovered was my block was that I felt like I was wasting their time. Why would this person who is, you know, two levels above me want to have a conversation with me? It's going to be all about me and I'm going to be getting value from this person, but they're not going to get anything out of me. And that is so not true. In every mentor-mentee relationship, no matter which side of the table I am on, I learn something amazing. And so I try to convince people now that you you may feel that same like block of like, I don't, I don't dare ask for all of this time from this executive because what do I have to offer them? You'd be surprised. You have a lot to offer and the conversation will be natural once you just get started. Um, one thing I would do is I would always come in with a few phrases or questions to kick it off, get conversation flowing. And I would have 10 of them prepared and I would maybe get to two of them because once I kick it off, the conversation becomes natural and you know I would relax a little bit, but it's that initiating that I always had a really hard time with. That's a great point. And you gave me another great segue, mentors and mentorship. Yeah. Have you had any mentors and how did you seek mentors for yourself? And what is your opinion about, like I'm a firm believer in mentorship because when you're trying to mentor somebody, you learn so much too. As you said, it's a two-way street. You know, you give some, you get a lot. That's how I look at it. What does that mean for you? I absolutely agree. I have had mentors of every shape and size. So I had the opportunity to speak to a very high-level person in IBM one. And it was a 45-minute conversation. Still to this day has sort of changed my behavior just based on what we talked about. And, you know, it was night and day between our experiences. She asked me how many people I had. And I think at that time I I had like 50 people on my team and she had 15,000 people on her team, right? I mean, we're all of a different, but she spent the time 45 minutes with somebody she didn't know. And she wouldn't know me if I, if I met her today at all, she wouldn't remember that conversation. But to me, I remember everything about that conversation. So that's the type where you get an opportunity. Someone says, oh, let me introduce you to someone, take that offer. And then there's also been the type where I go to them and say, I'm really looking to develop an XYZ. Would you be willing to mentor me on this? And just create a structure, create a call once a month 
and you know list out a couple bullets of here's some of the areas that I want to grow and then just let it naturally develop. Um, so I, I, I encourage both. And then I also encourage the opposite. If you want to get the best thing out of your relationship with your mentor, you should mentor someone. You should be on the other side of the table so you understand the dynamic from a different perspective. So we also talk a lot about allies at work, especially, right? Like mm-hmm. how do you build that um, relationship with your colleagues so that they become your allies, um, especially men, because we hear a lot, you know, sometimes you're not heard. Sometimes, you know, um, you feel that you're not being asked the right questions so you can really contribute to the best of your abilities. Mm-hmm. And in those instances, these allies come really forward, help you put your um, perspective on the table the right way. How do you go about making those allies? I have found the best way is when you have a specific topic, idea, vision, growth path, areas that you want to approve upon, find an ally that you respect in that category. You respect their opinion, their advice. Um, they lead by example in that specific area and bring your idea to them and start building your relationship that way and keep it up. Don't just do it once and then let it go for six months. I have also done that and I regret every minute of it. Um, but you know, your priority list is, is your priority list. And if you let it drop, it's really easy to let that type of relationship drop. Try really hard to keep it going so that they really get to know you and understand you. And that way, when you're ready to pitch something to an organization, then they're going to they're gonna be right there and they're going to have your back. So you just said it, right? So many times we don't nurture the relationships uh-huh. for various reasons. We don't have time or yeah. something else pops up and you're doing that. Now thinking back, having had such a successful career, what are some of the things you would tell your younger self? You know, two or three pieces of advice to say, stay away from this, do this, you know, what would that be? Yeah, um, I think one of them would be to invest in networking skills when you're young so that it, you constantly practice those and it becomes easier and easier. Um, I would also say practice the art of curiosity. It is something that I am very passionate about because I think it changes the dynamic of every conversation you have. If you are listening to understand versus listening to respond, and it's really hard to do because it's natural, it's innate in everyone who want to get their point across and to pause for a second and ask a question or make sure you understand exactly what they said changes the whole dynamic of a conversation, especially if it's a challenging conversation, it'll be night and day in terms of the outcome of that conversation. So let's take a little bit of a pivot here. We also get a lot of questions from our listeners to understand how does this work-life balance work? We all understand it's it's an equation over time, not at the point of time. Do you have two kids? How did this work for you? What were some of the things that you used to make sure that you had good time with family, but you were still able to do what you want to do in your career? Um, So I have learned a lot about work-life balance because of the situation that I was in. So my second child was born with a heart defect. And I found out when I was 18 weeks pregnant and at the age of one, he had open heart surgery. And so, you know, I was obviously still working, dealing with the emotional side, the responsibility side of being a parent with a sick child and trying to manage a team and, you know, stay engaged, et cetera. So I learned a couple of things. One, it's so dependent on your leadership, how you can show up or work when you are also dealing with personal chaos, which just having two kids can be considered personal chaos, but everyone has it. Everyone has a parent that might get sick, a sibling that might get sick, a neighbor that might get sick, right? Personal chaos is very normal. And what I found in leadership is it wasn't until I openly started talking about it, being vulnerable and saying what I was dealing with and how I was struggling in X, Y, and Z, that the conversation became normal in my team. And after I initially opened up this year kickoff with this with this 
um, not, it wasn't really a speech, but I kicked off this meeting with a very vulnerable story. <laughs> I was so surprised. I expected the women in the group to come up to me after and say, oh my God, you know, I, I was so touched, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't. It was the men saying, thank you for opening up this type of conversation. I have been dealing with X, Y, and Z at home and I haven't been telling everybody because I don't want it to, I don't want them to think I can't do my job. And that's the biggest thing. So once I kicked this off, vulnerability became part of my team and people felt comfortable bringing forward their personal chaos, knowing that they could step away 100% and deal with it so that they were not trying to balance both. The team would swoop in, help. And then when they got back, the dedication and the, the loyalty and the commitment and the engagement that they had was so much higher because they now know, like now I can focus on work versus having to do both. And I learned that the hard way because when he was, my son was in an induced coma and I found myself trying to figure out a commission spreadsheet. And I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> There's so many people that could do this commission spreadsheet. It does not need to be me at this moment. And it sort of sparked something in me. So, you know, creating that environment, whether you're a leader or you're on the team is transformational in terms of the productivity and the retention that you're going to get from a team. That's actually great advice. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely some, something to think about, because I think we talk a lot more about uh, vulnerability now than we ever did before. And mm -hmm. I think COVID has also had a huge uh, hand in changing that perspective and just having that personal aspect become part of your professional aspect, because that wasn't the case. Um, when no. you, started, you don't talk about kids. You don't talk about what's happening no. at home. You focus on what's happening here and now. Right. I think for the better. A hundred percent for the better. I mean, we still have a long way to go, but it's so much better than it was. A lot of times we feel women are more tough on other women <laughs> because we want to really set the standard and then we really want uh -huh. to be perfectionist in everything. And sometimes we have also this perception, right? Like you have to be a certain way. And when that perception is not met, there is a lot of resistance as well. And I think we have done a good job lately of really women supporting other women and then bringing this up. But if you had to kind of um, think about some attributes we as women have that really don't help us, you know, whether it's in our personal lives or at careers, what are some of those two or three traits that we should work on getting better at? I would say the first thing is being your authentic self. I think ju you just mentioned it, right? Back in the day, the instruction was if you want to be successful, you kind of got to act like a man and you got to dress like a man, <laughs> right? It doesn't have to be that way. You can absolutely be emotional and it's not going to get you fired. You can be your authentic self. And when you're your authentic self, you're going to be surprised how much better a conversation will go than if you're trying to be this person that you're really not, because either you've been told to act like this, or you've got some sort of blocker because you've got this fear of authority or looking stupid or not sounding smart. It prevents you from being your authentic self. And so I think that would be huge if women could dig in and figure out how to be their authentic self in any situation. Um, I also think we have to be an advocate for ourselves. I still find it really hard and very common that people, that women do not ask for a raise, push for a promotion. They make sure that they are doing the job before they ask for the promotion. Um, I think we can really encourage different behavior there and, and have be better advocates for ourselves. So on the personal side, what gives you joy? What makes you happy? Mm, what makes 
makes me happy. So I would say the mountains, like I said before, um, there's just something about it when I am in a mountain setting. It's just, it just feels different inside. Um, but I also like to be outside doing fun activities with my kids, with my husband, my family. I have a lot of sports in my house since I have two boys. So we're always doing something. <laughs> as well? Yes. Yeah. They didn't have a choice. Just like I didn't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is so great. Um, so any closing comments, Pauline? This has been just such a good conversation. I can keep going. There are just so many things. And uh, it's interesting that so many things I believe in are the things you mentioned, like word to word. And I'm like, this is just amazing. Yay. Um, I mean, I guess I would just sum it up for people that you can have it all, but you have to define your all. And your all can change no matter what season of your life you're in. So don't feel like there's a specific all and you can never reach it. You define your all and then you go after it. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Colleen. It was such a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful.